But this time, I want to dismiss kids interested in being in children's church. That's through for kids age four through kindergarten. Uh, if you're staying in here, uh, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 89. We will conclude a series in this psalm, and we get to a pretty dark, take a dark turn in this psalm, where it gets very somber and very much relates to the song we just sing, sung, that we want goodwill and peace, and yet there are sorrows to face. And so I'm going to read the text. I'm also going to invite uh, Jody Sloan to come up after I finish the text. Jody's going to share a little bit about her journey, um, her new journey with cancer, as well as her journey with Jesus thus far. So let me read to you verses 38 through 52. This is God's word. Uh, but you have rejected, verse 38, you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all mankind, humanity. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked. How I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Jody? Most of us have been in a point of our life that is hard. There are many who offer comfort through Bible verses and devotions. You may hear the promise in Jeremiah that God's plan is to prosper you and to give you hope. You may be directed to Romans where all things work together for the good. Or there's the very familiar from 1 Corinthians where we are told that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Through the years of a rich life of following him, <clears throat> my rest and comfort comes in the fact that all of this is true and that my God is sovereign. I went through a lot of things in my life before I fully understood the sovereignty of my God. I was four in my earliest recollection of my grandma teaching me how to play Jesus Loves Me on her organ, and along with Away in a Manger, during a Christmas program back when public schools still let us sing about Jesus, I knew I loved him, but as a kindergartner, obviously, I would have a lot to learn. There were a lot of things in my growing up years that could have left me questioning which direction he was leading. My parents had settled their Lutheran and Catholic upbringings and raised us in a cult started by Herbert W. Armstrong. It was a mixture of Jewish observances and the law and some Seventh-day Adventist teachings. It wasn't really something I questioned at the time, but I did know that I was different. I also knew that I was different from the kids in my own youth group. 
The Bible was alive for me. Even in those days when the interpretation was just plain bad, I felt life and light from God's word. It was about the third year of our married life that the church David and I both were raised in made a 360-degree turn into mainstream Christianity. Where we were not taught the Trinity growing up, we were now hearing pastors teaching about God in three persons. It was a time of learning and discovering the truth, getting to know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins was the beginning of our road out of legalism and into a thriving relationship with him. Somewhere in the middle of 10 years of infertility, I came across a verse in Psalm 37.4 that says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Coming from a legalistic background, at that time in my life I was doing everything I could think of to get God's attention. I had decided to look up every single verse I could find on prayer and make sure I was doing it right. So I studied delight. What did it mean to delight in the Lord? How could I get the deepest desire of my heart, which at that time was children? There were a few years of waffling as I tried everything I could think of to get God to answer my prayer the way I wanted him to. I reached the point of even telling God that if he wasn't planning to give us children, just please take that desire from my heart. I was a teacher after all, and maybe I was supposed to invest in other people's children. It was a difficult time for me, but it was the beginning of understanding God's sovereign timing in our lives. It was much easier for me looking back now to see that God's hand was in absolutely everything. Our infertility story obviously ended with a full quiver, and I will tell you right now that none of God's greatest gifts are anything that I have ever deserved in my feeble attempts to get my own way. He is so good to us. But just like in the garden at the very beginning, Satan wants to continue to feed us the lie that that's not true. Through anxiety and depression, God taught me that he will meet me in the darkness. Satan does his best work in the dark, and that had definitely been true in my life. As a younger woman, I let my mind go into those dark places and suffered a lot from anxiety and depression. At that time, I found Daniel 2.22 and the truth that he knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. God knows even in the dark, and because of what Jesus did for me, I can overcome that darkness with his light. Being in God's word on a regular basis gives all of us access to the amazing promises that we have in him. It was through infertility that he taught me how to trust his timing. Through a year of unemployment, when we had to move in with my parents with 18-month-old triplets, he taught us the book of James inside and out but left us still wondering, how in the world do we find joy in various trials? Through autism, God taught me how to trust that he picked the right one to parent this child. Through the death of our three-month-old nephew 12 years ago, he began to give us all an eternal perspective. When I miscarried who I thought would be our last child two years later, he once again assured me of our treasures that he will keep in heaven. A wise mentor once told me, if you are a believer, you don't ask God, why me? You ask, why not me? Why not us? Who better to weather a storm than one that has felt the solid rock below them when the rest of life squalls all around? If you have been in that place, you know. You either become bitter and angry or you hold on and trust that where God is taking you is where you should be. Nothing can touch us unless God, our sovereign Lord, sifts it through his very fingers. He is sovereign and we rest in that. We are again facing cancer in our house for the third time in five years. Each time it gets just a little more invasive and a little 
more inconvenient. We are tired. Just when we think we are in the clear, it strikes again. And I think Zach said it best the night we had to tell the children my new diagnosis. Oh, come on! We live in a fallen world. The enemy has sought to steal our hope and our joy on a regular basis. I can't tell you for sure when I started feeling God's joy in our yuck or when I finally understood that delighting in the Lord makes what I desire what he desires. But it happened somewhere along the way. He has opened opportunities to be his mouthpiece during these times of trial. People seem to endure gospel talk from someone who's fighting a life-threatening illness. And I've taken advantage of that. I've had the opportunity to sit with a friend and explain why I'm not angry at God for making us go through this again. I'm just not. I've had the opportunity to write a blog that people have followed, and he has given me marching orders not to be afraid to write about the hope that lies within me. Jesus himself asked the Father to let this cup pass from him. I admit I too have said that prayer because I find comfort in the book of Hebrews knowing that my Savior is not unfamiliar with the pain that I face. I've read the end of the book, and I hope I'm not ruining it for anyone, to say that we win. God is the sovereign Lord and maker, and he wins, and we get to be there. If the, it is only through the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that gets us a ticket to the end of the story, whether he takes us home before he comes or we see the dead in Christ rise first, we get to ride with the Lord Jesus Christ who offers so much more than this world. Can't you feel it? When you go through the hard stuff of life, can't you feel the pull in that clear message that this world is not my home? I do. He numbers all of our days. We don't know what is next day, what is next for this day, this week, or what the next month brings for any of us. But God's sovereignty over the lives of his chosen ones can comfort the grieving, settle the unsure, and strengthen the weakened human flesh. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Hey, can I pray for you before you sure. leave the stage? Lord, we thank you that you are holding uh, Jody's heart and her family and her body, and that no matter um, what she faces, there, as the one who is inside her is greater than the one in the world. And we know that Satan seeks to steal and kill and destroy. We know that evil is in this world. We know that fallen bodies are we're plagued by them, and so. We are so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you would come and let your body be shred on the cross, that you would die for us so that sins can be forgiven and that these bodies will one day be left behind and will be given a body like yours. We pray in your mercy and your grace and your power you would bring healing to Jody. Lord, use the miracle of modern medicine, and yet we know that medicine doesn't save. You save you heal. Would you do this in your timing? Guard this family from the trials that may come. And Lord, if for some reason you choose not to answer these prayers, and we don't know why, Lord, we pray that we would still see your faithfulness and goodness through, through Christ and uh, through your child, Jody, as she walks with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you. So this is... Uh, this is a hard psalm, hard story, hard transition for Jonathan. And uh, just thinking on this text, it made me think of, um, as a young man, my favorite book, my most requested book, was Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. 
And uh, I'm not sure why I often requested this book. It begins with Alexander uh, ruminating on his difficult morning with gum in his hair, and then standing up and falling because he steps on his skateboard. Maybe it reinforced my young, this young boy's mindset that life is hard and set up against me. Maybe it fed my budding narcissism. Because the world was supposed to work in my favor, and anything that undermined that system, system was terrible, horrible, and no good. Um, what's interesting, though, what we're seeing in Psalm 89, this isn't fiction. This is a real human person overcome by a series of tragedies. He's drowning in despair. His world is turned upside down for evil. All good seems far from his life and his land. It says right there in the beginning of the psalm that this is written by Ethan. It's composed after a national tragedy where Israel's king has been defeated and the land is in enemy hands. One might think of the feelings of the world after Hitler had invaded the Rhineland or hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. But this sense of despair that comes in our lives, it doesn't just require a national attack or national disaster because marriages end, jobs are lost, illnesses strike, homes flood, churches split, friendships break, college hopes get dashed. And so what I want to do is look at just the honesty, the rawness of this psalm and look at two realities he throws out. Uh, common for all of God's people. We'll experience these, these realities many seasons of our lives, and sadly for some people, every day of their lives. They strike the wealthy, they strike the poor, they, they strike mature, godly Christians, they strike immature, struggling Christians. So what are these? First reality, God's people feel rejected by God. If you haven't felt rejected by God yet, you will. Almost every major character in the Bible faced this reality. It's such a common experience among uh, the people of God in history that the people in the Middle Ages had a term for it, the dark night of the soul. Let's look at the rejection that Ethan felt. Verse 38, he says, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. If you remember last week, verses 18 through 37, uh, Ethan was recounting a lengthy section of promises that God had made to King David and to King David's son and to the line of King David, to the people of Israel. And it's, it's full of joy. It's full of expectation. But then this dark turn in verse 38, it points the finger at God and starts with, but you, you, things are supposed to be good, hopeful and bright, but you, but you, God, you've done something else altogether. You have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one. Now, if I remind you, anointed one in Hebrew is the word Messiah, God's anointed one, particularly a king in this case. So God's king is rejected. And God's, wherever God's king is in the Old Testament is his people. So by God's king being rejected, so too his people have been rejected. 
And what he does, what Ethan does, is things go from bad to worse. Verse 39, it says, You've renounced the covenant with your servants. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins. Now, notice again, there's no attacker named here. No country, no foreign king. Ethan is pointing the finger at God and saying, you're the one who is defiling and reducing Israel's king to ruins. Ethan is recognizing that God has some power here to protect. Uh, He has power to allow or not allow something. And so Ethan puts this evil that he's experienced, the, 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 the tragedy, he's, putting, he's pinning it on God. And I think it's similar to Job's response after he loses his family, uh, after Satan's given permission to, it looks like, do a windstorm and all kinds of horrific things so that Job loses land and family and possessions, and he says, you, Lord, give and take away. Uh, Ethan's day goes from bad to terrible, uh, and even very... Uh, no good. Look at verse 41. He just keeps getting worse. So all who pass by have plundered him, this anointed one. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have ex- <laughs> so that you've exalted the right hand of his enemies. Of the, of the foes of the Israel's chosen king, you've exalted the strength of the enemies. You have made all his enemies re- rejoice. Verse 43. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword, and not supported him in battle. The king is firing blanks. He thought he had power, now he has no power. Verse 44, you've put an end to all his splendor. You've cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with a mantle of shame. So the enemy nations have arrived, and they've plundered. Rather than strengthen Israel's king, God has exalted the right hand of his enemies. Verse 43 says, God is weakening Israel's military might. The country is ravaged. The king's splendor is gone, and death is at hand. I mean, this is utter rejection. I felt rejected. I mean, one of the, as I reflect my own heart, I felt utterly rejected. Somewhat embarrassing to admit it, but I felt utterly rejected when I got to the end of my high school career and I had not performed on the sports field how I hoped I was going to. I thought I'd be better. Thought I would have delivered. I remember my wife feeling utterly rejected when we lost our first child to miscarriage. Some of you feel rejected by God because your marriage hasn't turned out like you hoped. Your kids have gone ways you feared. Jobs have been lost, and the ones retaining bring little joy. And illness and pain for some of you are daily realities. What I love about Christianity is it's just honest. This is common. There's no smokescreen that this doesn't happen to God's people and there's no, like, there's no book called The Secret in the Bible that says if you just will it and hope enough and think enough, positive things will come into your life. So know this church, you are sitting among fellow sufferers. Know this church, your neighbors and non-Christian coworkers, they don't face much different either. Jesus himself was described this way in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Compare him to this. Muhammad wins great battles and Buddha finds inner peace. Jesus dies on a cross. 
Reality number one, feeling rejected by God. Second reality that God's people face is we will plead for God's remembrance. And the word plead, it's the idea, this is more than a gentle ask. Uh, A plead is more than a polite request. A plead comes from the gut. And this is a cry of the heart. It's an acute sense of feeling paralyzed. All resources have been exhausted. All private attempts at rescue and peace have come up short. And then you plead. Verse 46. How long, Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? These are three rapidly fired questions to start the pleading. How long will you, how long? And then this cry of despair. Remember how fleeting is my life for what futility you have created all humanity. Then two other please questions. Who can live and not see death? Or who can escape the power of the grave? 49. Lord, where is your former great love, which in you, which in your faithfulness you had sworn to David? God, you promised. Then he says, Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies, Lord, have mocked, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. God, aren't you seeing this? Some of the repetition, like, God, are you missing what's going on in my life and in the world right now to your king, to your, to your people? Now, the word remembrance or to remember to the Jewish people the word, the biblical word, remember, it, it means to be, to be an, once again an object of God's mercy and grace. See me, God. Remember me. It's what a, a criminal on death row is hoping the governor does before midnight. Remember me. Make that call. Grant clemency. I don't deserve it, but I'm pleading for it. To be remembered means God shows up after feeling forgotten. It's being a recipient of power and peace from heavenly storehouses. So when we get on our knees and we say, here's my life, God. Here's how bad it has gotten. Here I am. There you are. Look at me. Quit forgetting me. Don't ignore this mess. Can you intervene in my terrible, horrible, no good, very bad now, many people start their relationship with God or restart their relationship with God in the midst of a hardship. They haven't prayed in months or years, and then utter despair strikes, and then that special pleading comes out, and maybe it's a prayer like this. So, God, I don't know if you're even there, but if you are, and you can hear me, would you please do something? I was talking to a friend last week. Um, he was recently in the hospital, emergency room, took his wife late at night. She's going through all these diagno- diagnostics tests, trying to identify uh, why the pain, why the suffering. He was nervous and he was anxious, but he did not pray. I asked, why? 
And he went on to tell me he had grown up religious, but it had been years since it was a major part of his life. He had grown up actually in a Christian home, but after marrying an atheist, he says, he, he, his own words, I've put God on the shelf. And so in the hospital, he felt it wouldn't be appropriate to lean on God now. Now, interestingly, um, a different friend of his texted something to the effect, hey, I'm praying for you, man. It brought a huge amount of peace. 30 minutes later, the doctors actually finally figured out what was wrong. Two realities, feeling rejected, pleading remembrance. And so what, I want to ask, what do we do with these realities? What, how, you know, how do we move this now to the 21st century? Uh, well, first, we need to try to come to grips why these realities face us in the first place. Why, why, why is there suffering? An atheist could just deny suffering and evil altogether. There's no, no such thing. There's no such thing as God. They don't believe in a God who could reject them. So um, they're, they're not going to feel rejected. They're just That's just what happens. This is what time and chance has produced in my life. And if any maybe stirring to pray came up, it's just some leftovers uh, from earlier evolutionary development. But it's not real. Uh, interesting, Hinduism and Buddhism, they point to desire, desire as the great, greatest problem. The Buddha teaches the end of desire is the end of suffering. So the idea is it's our attachments, it's our desires. If we could just get rid of these attachments and these desires, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't suffer so much. The ancient Greeks attached some meaning uh, through their myth about Pandora's box or uh, a jar, but this box was never to be opened until the gods decreed, but the curious Pandora just couldn't wait. And so when she opens this box, horrible things, they fly out of the box, greed and envy, hatred, pain, disease, hunger, poverty, war, and death. All of life's miseries had been let out of the world. It says Pandora slammed the lid of the box back down, and the last thing remaining at the bottom of the box was hope. I love this story, right? There's hope at the bottom of the box. The problem with it is it's fiction. It never really happened. Uh, Christianity has been described as being the most falsifiable religion. That is, mean we, we believe that Jesus really lived, Jesus really died, Jesus really rose from the dead in history, in real time, in real space. And because Jesus is a historical person who lived and died in real space, time, and history, there is real hope. Some people have called it a true myth. It gives meaning to rejection and remembering. Let's put this together. Jesus Christ, he was rejected. Really, all these verses in Psalm 89 about the anointed one being rejected, they're pointing ahead to the true anointed Messiah and King to be rejected, who cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the child in the line of David, God's anointed. Jesus is God's promised Messiah. Not only that, he was the eternal son of God without sin. So unlike the sons of David who were punished for their own sin and rejected for their own evil, Jesus was innocent. And then he dies among criminals. 
He pleads for remembrance. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So how do we tie these realities of rejection and remembering? It's simply this. Jesus was rejected so that you can be remembered. Jesus was rejected so that you can be remembered. The one human person whose prayer deserved to be answered went unanswered. The one human person who deserved wealth took death. The one worthy of worship was given a whip across his back and nails through his hands. Jesus was rejected so that you could be remembered. When we come to the Lord's table today, know that those elements are to symbolize Jesus gave his body and his blood. He gave his death so that you can have life. Now remember, to be remembered means to be an object of God's grace and mercy. So let me just talk to you, those of you that are maybe like my friend and you haven't talked to God in a long while and maybe you feel even ashamed to talk to God. I always want you to know this. This is so important. Jesus was rejected so that you can be remembered. You don't have to come to church five weeks to cry out to God. You don't have to have a perfect track record of reading your Bible for three days before he'll hear you. We go to God in our guilt, in our shame, in our brokenness, in our desperation, and we cry out to be remembered, and he does because Jesus was rejected. He does. To be remembered is to be an object of grace and mercy. And so to cry out means you, you get what you don't deserve because Christ died for what we do deserve. So I just invite you, if you haven't talked to God in a long time, if you've never talked to God, if you've never given your life to God, you just come to him. You come home. The door's unlocked. Better yet, the door's open. And Jesus is in the doorway saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come. He died for your sins, though he didn't deserve it, so your sins that deserve punishment can be forgiven. Please don't try to clean yourself up. If you try to clean yourself up, you'll never understand his grace and his mercy. I want to talk, too, to some maybe people like Ethan. So these are God's people. Ethan was a God-fearer. He worshiped God, and yet he was in utter desperation. Some of you don't see dawn coming. You just see darkness. Uh, this, his story struck me this week. By, again, I thought of the person I think about maybe a little too often is C.S. Lewis. And he recounts his pain and the sorrow at the death of his wife in a book called A Grief Observed. He had a very short marriage that ended too quickly by cancer. And he wrote this about as he reflected on his sorrow. He said, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. 
Sometimes we face such horrific things in our life that we can't fathom. How could there be a God who would allow this? How could there be an omnipotent, all-powerful God who would allow this? I commend his book, A Grief Observed. It's his own odyssey of trying to hold together the existence of God and evil together. In the end, Lewis comes to profess that we know about God from the person and work of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we must see that God's goodness is not in question. Why? Because God is committed to ridding evil and ugliness out of, out of our lives. But to do this, he must go all the way. Like a good surgeon who must not stop mid-surgery, God in his goodness will bring great sorrows to bring greater healing. He did it through Jesus ultimately, He's doing it in a small part in our lives as well. Lewis eventually writes, The more we believe God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use begging for tenderness. The more we believe God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use begging for tenderness. This lines up well with a, with a modern writer named Sinclair Ferguson who has written this. He says, For no element of God's providence should be read as a mark of his enmity against us. For no element of God's providence should be read as a mark of his enmity against us. After all, all your losses are but as the loss of a farthing to a prince. God's heart is full of love Wilts the face of providence is full of frowns. The Christian who realizes that the Lord is near will see all these things in their proper perspective. When Jesus felt utterly alone on the cross, the Father was there. And he was doing something more beautiful and amazing than we can ever get our minds around. In fact, we will spend all of eternity worshiping a God who can bring such beauty out of such ashes. I mentioned this when we first started Psalm 89, is that when the wise Christians in England who put together the Book of Common Prayer, who give various readings for different days of the year, that Psalm 89 is the Christmas reading. This is a psalm of Messiah who is answering the questions and the cries and the pleadings of Ethan. Where are you, God? He's on a cross, dying to save his people, dying the ultimate death so that one day we will not face death ever again. Another thing that's fascinating is that Psalm 89 is the, the concluding psalm of the third book of the Psalms. So the psalm, book of Psalms is broken up into five major divisions. Psalm th the book, this third book ends with questions. It ends with despair. And then you turn the page to Psalm 90, and you keep reading in the 94 and 95. You know what these psalms are about? Our God is king. Our God is good. Our God rules over heaven and earth. And that's why they have this transition verse, verse 52. It's not really part of the original Psalm 89, but it is there to keep us believing 
Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The answer to death is the blessed and eternal God. Truly, he is our only hope. Ethan had questions, and only in Jesus do we have answers. Truly, he is our only hope. As we come to the table today, sing from your hearts, Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends here, knowing that uh, we brought in sorrows and burdens today. And probably people's hearts were pierced as they thought of what they're facing. I pray that their pierced hearts would send them to the pierced side of the Savior who died for them. I pray that they would have, have hope in the one who died for them, hope for their forgiveness of their sins, hope for the future resurrection of their bodies, hope for the righting of all the wrongs that this world is uh, ravaged with. The evil is all around. It would crush us, but thanks be to God, Jesus was crushed to crush the evil. So we're thankful that we can now remember his death. Now, for us, thankful to remember that death did not hold him and the grave did not keep him, but he rose again. In Jesus' name, amen.